0: Good morning. For those of you that weren't in here earlier, I'm glad you're here today. This is a good day. Nice, crisp, cool fall day. Oh, man, I love it. And I have already had multiple people ask me. Where's my flannel? <laughs> I wear flannel in the middle of summer, and then finally we get cool weather, and I don't. I was like, well, at least I got a jacket. I got a, I got a hoodie, so I'm good. All right, yeah, it's a good, it's a good day, and I'm excited because uh, as we continue in this study of Galatians, we're coming into something today that is so important for us to understand. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and head there. I have to tell you, when I was getting ready for the, the teaching this weekend, um, I read through the passage, and I'm like, all right, we're talking about... Talking about the law versus faith again. And it's like, how many times? I mean, it's, it feels like we've been talking about this for the last six weeks. This one topic from multiple perspectives, different angles, different ways of thinking about it. And here we find ourselves again. And I think I said last week, obviously, this is something we can never hear enough. This is so foundational And as we've been going through this series, I've been getting this picture and we've been talking about this of uh, Paul basically building a house here, like a house of faith, and taking these people who are in Galatia, who started off strong, but are kind of fickle, fly-by-night people, and they had started strong when he was there and he had started the churches in that area, but then other people came in after him and started confusing them. He had told them that you are justified before God, saved before God by faith in Jesus or through faith in Jesus alone. That's it. But these Jews came in after them and said, no, nah, that's not really it. it. I mean, yes, it's that, but you have to do that. You have to trust in Jesus, yes. But you also then have to do the law. You have to get circumcised. You have to observe the feasts and the festivals and the Sabbath and the dietary laws and all of those things. You still have to do all of that stuff. And Paul couldn't believe it when he found out that people had come in and done this to the people in Galatia because it wasn't true. And so he writes the book of Galatians to set the record straight. And he spends so much time at the beginning of Galatians talking about the contrast between faith and the law. And here we find ourselves again. And I was, you know, he starts with facts if that's what this series is. I don't love the title of this series. I'm going to level with you. I don't think anybody does. Um, but I was in a pinch, and I had to come up with a title. And so I came up with a title, Facts, Faith, and Fruit. That is the progression of Galatians. We start with He starts with the facts, and then he talks about how to build faith on those facts. And then he talks about the fruit that comes out of that faith. All right, so that is the progression. But it just doesn't roll off the tongue. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so it's a little weird to say. But he's been talking about this thing and setting this foundation and i'm getting this picture of him actually building a house and he has to set that foundation first and i'm curious how many have you, any of you ever built a house from the ground up you guys are doing it right now have you moved in yet yes, last week last week awesome cool yeah so listen if you've ever built something like that you know the first thing that you have to do or one of the first things you have to do is pour the foundation right pour the footers pour the foundation and it can be part of the most frustrating process of building a house or any structure for that matter, because you pour it, you prepare it, and then you just have to wait. And it feels like you're not making any progress at all because you just have to to wait for that concrete to cure, to off-gas and to cure, and to be stable enough to build the structure on top of the foundation. And so that takes time for that to settle in, for it to rest and to become as strong as it needs to be before you can build the other things on top. And so I thought about that this week, that that is what's happening with us, and that's what's happening here in the book of Galatians. This, This foundation needs time to cure and to firm up and to stabilize, and we need to hear it over and over and over and over and over again until in our own life it is rock solid and then we can build everything else on top of that and it'll be level and strong and all the things that it needs to be. So here we find ourselves again talking about the contrast of the law and faith. The way that Israel thought that they were made right before God, even though we've learned in this series that's not how they were made right before God. Even going all the way back to Abraham, who we talked about last week, they were justified by believing God, and it was accounted to them for righteousness. Same thing was true for the Israelites, even when they were under the law, but they got twisted and they thought that the law was the way to do it. And then Jesus came and gave his life on the cross and rose again on the third day. And now we are justified, and it is known at this time, at that point. That we are justified by faith, believing God, believing in Christ, and so that's what Paul is trying to firm up. And he's been especially hard on the law in what we just read yesterday or last week, not yesterday, last week. All right, he said things like this. He said, "For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse," which seems like, oh, that's pretty harsh on the law, isn't it? He says that, he said that the law is not of faith. He said that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And he said, the inherit- if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer a promise. So you could easily hear all of he's, all of what he's saying, and they could have heard that at this time. And they could have said, well, then the law is bad, right? What do we do with the law? Do we, just, do we pitch the law? Do we throw it aside? Do we ignore it? Is it bad? Is it evil? Does it just lead people to sin? Is the law a bad thing? He's going to address that today. So we understand how to think about and look at the law today, knowing that we stand in grace. All right, so we're in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to pick up today in verse 19, if you have your Bibles with you. All right, what, he asked the question straight up, what purpose then does the law serve? So if we're not under the law, and the law brings a curse, we're in we're under faith, what purpose does the law actually serve? That's the question they would all be asking. And that's a very, it's a very practical question for us even today to answer because we, you have your Bible. And if you look at your Bible, two thirds of it or more is Old Testament, right? So what do we do with the law? What do we do with all these instructions that God has given to us? What purpose do they serve? All right. So he continues on in 19. He says, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now, remember the seed, we talked about this last week, the seed was Christ, right? That's the, that's who the promise comes through and then comes to us because we are in Christ. The, the promise made through Abraham. So um, he says, the law was added because of transgressions. The law was added Because people, for hundreds of years, uh, after God had already established his covenant with Abraham and they were trying to be God's people and his nation, they still didn't understand what God's will was and what sin was and how they were supposed to live their life. And God needed them to see that they were sinful. And so he gave them the law, this system of rules, this intricate system of rules and regulations that they had to follow to not only teach them about him so they could understand what his will was for their life and what was outside of his will, which would be sin, whatever is sin and what's not sin, and understand how they were supposed to live their life, but also at the same time to realize that there was no way they could measure up to that standard that he had set. There's a dual purpose of the law. So it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So the law was necessary until Jesus came. It's almost like the law, in a way, and I don't want to minimize it by saying this, but the law was like a stopgap measure. It was like, let's keep people on the road. (laughs) Let's set the guardrails so they understand what life is supposed to be like. And then at some point when Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, they will no longer need those guardrails in the same way in order to understand what God's will is. The law served an important purpose, but the law was not the point. The law was a means to an end, but the law was not the end. And I think that the nation of Israel got this backwards. And the the Jewish teachers at the time got this backwards. And it's the reason they couldn't understand or couldn't see the Messiah when he was standing right in front of them. Because he had turned the law into the goal, into the end, when redemption through Messiah was the end. And so they got that backwards. And frankly, even today, and I won't speak for them because I don't believe the same things that they believe. But if a Jewish rabbi is teaching Torah today, if they're teaching it and not teaching it as pointing toward the Messiah, then they're doing it wrong. And there are people and they still teach that way today to the law. And so they've missed him and will continue to miss him. Until they realize the point of the law is to show them their need for the Messiah and to recognize that he's already come. The law was not an end. It's a little bit like um, I was reading in some commentaries this week and I saw this analogy. and I thought it was so good um, of a, a space shuttle. So imagine a space shuttle sitting on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral. And they, three, two, one, you know, lift off that rocket. They fire and you got those two big rockets on the side of the space shuttle and they're just pouring out smoke and fire and shoots off into the atmosphere. And as soon as it's on the right, as soon as the shuttle is on the right trajectory and has the, whatever, the the gravity is doing all the things it's supposed to do or not do what it's not supposed to do. As soon as it gets to that point, what happens? The shuttle ejects the rocket launchers, the boosters, and they fall back to earth. Because the shuttle is on the trajectory that it needs to be on, and now has everything that it needs. Those those rocket boosters couldn't take the shuttle where it needs to go. As soon as they're out of fuel, those are—I mean, for a shuttle, it's a dead weight at that point. It ejects the the uh, boosters, but it's already on the path it's supposed to be on. The boosters are good. They're necessary. They're needed. They're fantastic. They're wonderful. But at some point, they're not needed in the same way that they were when they started. In some way, the law is like that, is like that. It is good and serves a very important purpose. And actually for us, unlike those rocket boosters, still does today. And we're going to talk about what that role is as we go forward. All right. He goes into verse, um, the middle of the end of 19 and verse 20 and admittedly, the, what we're about to read is a little confusing, so we'll, we'll break it down and so that we kind of understand what he is saying. Um, he says, talk about the law. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. This is a little confusing, and it's a little weird, particularly to us today, here, and Now. And there are, by the way, literally hundreds of different ideas out there about what somebody counted them up and counted 250 different ideas of what this verse actually means. All right. But let's take it piece by piece. And I'll tell you what I think it means. And then you can agree or disagree with me. But um, feel free to do that. Um, Says it was appointed through angels that the law was appointed through angels. Now, this is really weird to us. Because the Old Testament scriptures don't talk about the law being given to Moses through angels. It doesn't say anything about that in the text that we have. However, Jewish oral tradition held very strongly at this time and through all of Jewish history that the law, all of these laws and rules were given to Moses by angels. So even though this wasn't written down in the Old Testament, this was always considered to be the truth by Jews. So we read that and we're like, oh, that's weird. And they would not have thought it was weird at all. They would have all gone, yeah, that's how it happened. So, And that is how it happened. Uh, this is an important thing to remember. Not everything that happened got written down. And just because it wasn't written down doesn't mean it didn't happen. So that was the understanding at the time. That had always been the understanding that the law was given by angels to um, through angels to Moses. So they were appointed, the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now in this case, I think the mediator is talking about Moses. Okay, so the law was given to Moses and through Moses. And essentially, here's the picture that we need to have. We talked about this last week, but the, the law, the Mosaic law, was a two-sided agreement. That's a two-sided covenant. God says, if you will do these things, Then I will do these things. There's two parties involved in the Mosaic Law. If you back way up to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that was a one sided agreement. The promise that God made to Abraham that in him all nations would be blessed, that he would have descendants and he would have land, that was a one sided agreement. The law was a two sided agreement. So it requires a mediator. You know that from any agreement that you have. There has to be a go-between in that that agreement. There has to be a, a, a person that that funnels through. And so Moses initially is the mediator of this covenant. He's the one who receives it from the angels. He's the one who gives it to the people. He's the one who watches out to make sure that they are doing their end of the deal. And then God, of course, is going to do his end of the deal. And then after Moses, so the responsibility of this is passed to priests, and now people have to go through priests. Priests have to offer the sacrifices. Priests have to go to God on their behalf. There's a go-between, a middleman in the relationship. Right? This is still the way that Jews worship God today. They go through rabbis. They go through someone else. This is the way that even Christians, unfortunately are taught that their relationship with God exists and they have to go through a priest or they have to go through the Pope or they have to go through some other person. But that's how a two-sided agreement is set up. That's how a, a two-sided agreement requires a mediator. But if the law is passed and we are now, by faith in Christ, we're in the promise of the original covenant, that is a one-sided agreement. We are in an unconditional agreement with God, and so a mediator is no longer required. So you don't have to go through, just so you know, if you don't already know this, to have access to God, you do not have to go through me. You do not have to go through a priest or a pope or a pastor or anybody else. You have direct access to God in Jesus Christ. All right, so he's pointing out the contrast and the differences here, and he says, um, let's see, uh, now a mediator does not mediate for one only. He means there has to be a mediator if you've got two parties involved, but God is one, and He's been talking about the promise. So his point is that that mediator is no longer is no longer necessary. All right. So the promise unmediated, the law mediated, but now that Christ has come, that mediator is no longer needed because we've received the Spirit when we believe God. We accept salvation through Jesus Christ. We receive the Spirit, and He is with us at all times. And we don't need the law to mediate our behavior, or a person to mediate our relationship with God, and we don't need the law to dictate our behavior. The Spirit leads us, and the Spirit guides us and gives us access to God. All right, so verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? So is the Mosaic law in contrast to or opposed to or does it negate the promise of God, the Abrahamic covenant, that promise? Certainly not. And this could easily be translated, God forbid. (laughs) No, of course not. Is it against the promises of God? No. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So he's made this point and he makes this point in other places in scripture too, that Yeah, if if we could be good enough, if we could keep a law well enough in order to earn righteousness before God, that's the way it would have worked. That's how every religious system is set up, isn't it? That's the one that makes sense to us. But that doesn't work because none of us are capable of keeping the law. Right? Right? If that had been possible, that's the way that it would have worked. But it wasn't possible. And in groups this week, there's a really beautiful uh, parallel passage in Hebrews chapter 10 that talks about the blood of bulls and goats and can they cover sins and why do they have to keep doing that over and over and over again. Um, we don't have time to read that today, but you're going uh, to look at that in your groups this week. So you'll dive into Hebrews chapter 10 and, and talk about that reality, sort of the futility of these religious systems um, and understand them. But it was, never, it was never the law's job to justify anyone before God. It couldn't do that. You couldn't be good enough to do that. It was supposed to do something else. Verse 22. But the scripture, and this would be the law, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who, what? Believe not the ones who do, not the ones who keep all the rules, to the ones who believe. He says, so here's here's what the law did. The law confined everyone under sin. The law showed everyone that they were sinful. And it kept them in line, it kept them in order, until, kept them in line, showed them their sins, so that the promise, remember he keeps using this terminology, the law and the promise, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. This is the gospel, okay? That that we first, the first thing that needs to happen in our life is we need to see our sin. That's step number one. We have to recognize that we've sinned and that we've fallen short of God's glory, and that there's nothing that we can do to make up for that. There's nothing that we can do to be good enough. We were talking about this in our group on Thursday night. I always have this picture in my head. If if salvation, just practically speaking, if salvation before God, like going to heaven versus going to hell, if that were based on my behavior, then where is the line? What? Because theoretically, in all of humanity and the billions of people who have ever lived, there's a line somewhere. There's one person who got into heaven and there's one person who didn't. What was the difference between those two people? It must be a hair. It must be splitting a hair. It's got to be this person held the door open for someone else, and this person pretended they didn't see the person behind them and just walked through. Otherwise, their lives were completely the same. If if that's the way that it works, how do you measure that? And how do you judge it? And how do you decide who gets in and who gets out? Because you would get down to the even finest little details. It's just even theoretically not even possible that it works that way. It can't work that way. Unless there were one person who lived completely without sin. And that person chose to take on someone else's sin. So that other person could receive their sinlessness, their righteousness, which is what Jesus did. And he offers that to you and to me. And there's no other way that we can be saved because he's the only one who has done that. And he's the only one capable of doing that. And that's why he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him because it's the only way that it works. And so the law does its job, not only teaching us about the character and the nature of God, which is very, very important, and about how he wants us to live our lives, but it brings us face to face with our sin and gets us to a point where we look at that law and we go, Yeah, there's no way. I couldn't do that. Even from this point forward, I couldn't do it, let alone how I've broken it in the past. So, what is the law? And it still does this, it still serves this role, even today. It did its job. The law is like a mirror. Imagine for a second that you're, uh, you're over at somebody's house and uh, having dinner or whatever. And uh, they say, hey, you've got something on your face. And you go, oh, I'm sorry. And so you, so you go to the, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I'm like, you imagine what's, what's going on. But, all right, so, so you go to the bathroom. You go to the, the spare bathroom or whatever. And you walk in and there's a sink right there. And then there's a mirror right? And you walk into the bathroom and you look into the mirror and you see the thing that's on your face, right? The mirror helps you see that there's something on your face and where it is and what it is. Who knows, all right? And what it is. But you don't use the mirror to clean your face. (laughs) Can you imagine that for a second? You're just trying to, you know, what would happen? It would get worse, right? It would get worse. You can't clean anything off your face with a mirror. No, you have to use the water. You have to use the water from the assuming it's that kind of thing that's on your face. Anyway, yeah, you have to, you have to use the water to clean it, right? The, the law is a mirror, okay? The law, the law can show me I'm a sinner, but it cannot make me a saint. It can show me I'm a sinner, but it cannot make me a saint. What I need is I need the grace of God through Jesus Christ, and I need the power of the Spirit to clean that thing off of my face. That's how it happens, Now, the mirror continues to show me things. Sorry about this analogy. Continues to show me things that are on my face. All the way through my life, even when, I'm in, even when I'm in grace, even when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, the law continues to show me what the will of God is and how he wants me to live my life. But I don't look at the law and follow it to the letter because I'm afraid that I'm gonna, I'm gonna fail God or I'm gonna lose my salvation or whatever if I don't do all of these things. I look at the law and I say, God, where are you here? And through the power of the Spirit, show me how you want me to do this thing in my life, how you want me to honor this aspect of you, how you want me to fulfill this desire that you have for me as a follower of you. The, the law is tremendously powerful in our life, but we have to keep it in perspective and understand what its role is and not get things flipped and not think it's an ends rather than a means, which it still is. All right? The law, he said, confines us all under sin. It imprisons us under sin. The law convicts us. The law proves that we're sinful. Lest anyone should be able... Lest. whoo Lest anybody should say, well, I haven't sinned. Well, you can point to the law. We have it in black and white, okay? It it convicts us. It confines us under sin. It shows that we are slaves to sin naturally. People say, well, I'm not a slave to sin. Great, stop. If you're not under sin's control, then just stop. It's like an addict, you know, who's addicted to pills, and they say, oh, I'm not addicted to pills, and you go, great stop. You can't do it, right? And so the law confines us under sin. It shows all of us that we are sinful. But the response to seeing that sinfulness is not to try harder. The response to that sinfulness is to trust more, is to ask the Spirit to lead us and change us to ask the spirit to reveal sin in our life. If he, wants, if he uses the law to do that, if he uses other scriptures to do that, if he uses people and believers in our life who know the law and know what sin is and what God's will is, he uses all of that to reveal that sin. And then we go to the spirit and we say, help me. Help me to be as much like Jesus as I can possibly be. Uh, Paul goes on, okay, verse 23 Before faith came, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. okay, Imprisoned, everyone understand, we were kept uh, under guard by the law. Kept for the faith, which would be afterward revealed. So it's protecting people, leading people, showing them their sin, so they would be looking forward to the Messiah that is coming. Therefore, verse 24, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So he said, all right, we're kept under guard by the law. Keeps people in line, protects them, prepares them, helps them to look forward to the Messiah. Now we're looking back at the Messiah instead of forward. So we don't need the law in the same way. It was to prepare them to recognize and receive their Savior by faith. Um, I had an opportunity a few years ago to really dig into this and understand how this works, especially in the Old Testament, because all Old Testament scripture should be pointing us toward the Savior, the Messiah that's coming. I mean, my father, who was a pastor in the same church for 36 years, and then retired quote retired and took a job at a nursing home because he loves doing funerals, <laughs> and so I'm not kidding. Uh, but in but in the but in the meantime. He loves doing funerals. You know why he loves funerals? Because he said people are never more open to the gospel than they are at a funeral. And so he loves that. And um, but he just he went through he decided he wanted to get his doctorate. And so he went through a doctoral program. And I got to participate in the, the cohort that he put together as we learned. And he put together this class as part of his doctoral program. And the whole point of it was how do you read Old Testament narratives, Old Testament scripture, and see the gospel in the scripture, and then teach the gospel through the scripture. And it's one of the most eye-opening and beautiful things I've ever been a part of, but, but that's what we need to do. We need to read it, and when we read Old Testament scripture, also read it as if we are looking forward. What is it pointing us forward to? What are we looking for? What are we supposed to see here? Now that we are standing grace, and we are in faith, and not under the law, but what does he want us to learn? And what does he want us to see about Christ, about our life, about who he is? Uh, the, uh, and my dad did get his doctorate, by the way. He's Dr. Doug. So if you ever see him, call him Dr. Doug. He'll love that. He uh, worked hard for it. But uh, he says, he says we were, they were kept under a tutor. And, and this is a little weird, okay? Because And you might think of like a, um, a, a tutor who's teaching kids math or something, you know, and meeting to do that kind of thing. That's not what the word means, actually. There just isn't a word in English for the word that he used. Not a good word anyway, um, because it, they used the word, and the, the transliteration in English would be the word pedagogue, okay? He said, you're under a pedagogue. A pedagogue, we don't have them in our culture, not really. At the time, if you were a wealthy Roman family and you had children, you wouldn't have time for your children, and so you would hire a pedagogue, or you would take a servant of yours and make them a pedagogue, and essentially, they were responsible for the children. So I don't know what, like governess, you know, that kind of role. Maybe think Sound of Julie Andrews and Sound of Music, that kind of role. They're responsible for the children's growth and maturity and getting them to school and all of that. But they're not a teacher. That's not, the, that's not what that means. They are responsible for the growth and maturity of the children until the children are old enough to take care of themselves. So maybe, I don't know, you know, Mary Poppins. Right. They just they just finished doing Mary Poppins here or the mean old, the old nanny who was the the father's nanny before. Right. So it's a it's a person who is charged with the growth and maturity and protection of the child until the child is old enough to take care of themselves. This makes perfect. This makes a lot more sense than just tutor. This makes perfect sense with what he's talking about with the law. The law's job was to protect, was to mature, was to grow, was to prepare, was to point in the right direction until they were ready to take care of themselves, or in this case, ready to receive the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. This is a great responsibility that we have as believers. All right, So that was their job. And so that's what the law did. And the law served an important role in their life. And the law still serves a very important role in our life as well. When, even though we're not under it, even though we know that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ and not through works of the law, the law still plays a very important role in our life. As Jesus was walking and he was teaching, it was actually a weird, and you have to keep this in mind when you read the Gospels. When Jesus was walking on earth, he got questioned all the time about the law. But we're in this weird in-between time where the Messiah is here, but the Messiah has not given his life on the cross yet. And so Jesus hasn't given his life on the cross yet, so the people he's talking to are still under the law. So, so he talks about to them as if they are still under the law and encourages them to continue following the law. But the whole time he is trying to point them to something beyond the law, something bigger that they're supposed to be looking for and thinking about. And so he gets questioned, so you can see this in action. He gets questioned about the law all the time. All the time. He gets, uh, he gets questioned, um, and he talks about tithing, for example, in Matthew 23. That's an Old Testament law. Give 10%. And it wasn't 10%. It was 23.5% that they were supposed to give. It was three tithes, two annual and one triannual. maybe is the word. Um, but they were to support and to, care, to take care of the things that the nation needed to take care of. So they, had, they were commanded to do this. And so Jesus looks at the Pharisees, and he says, yeah, you tithe but you neglect the weightier manners of the law, like the matters of the law, like truth and justice and, and mercy. You should do the former. They're under the, they're under the law. You should do the former, but not neglect the latter. Jesus was always pointing to the higher principle behind the law, the thing they were supposed to see about who God was and who God wanted them to be, and also to look forward to what was coming. He got questioned. I think one of the best examples of this also is when he gets, uh, he gets questioned about basically how you're made righteous before God. And this guy that famously is called the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he says, what does it take? And Jesus said, you know the law. What do you read? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, that's right. Do that and you will live. Now, let's pause there for a second and appreciate what Jesus, how specific Jesus is and what he says. (laughs) Great, do that perfectly and you'll have everlasting life, you'll live. Can the rich young ruler do it? No, you can't, I can't, he can't. And he looks at Jesus and says, great, I've I've done all those things since I was young. And he's thinking, I've kept the law pretty well. And Jesus says, Ah, oh, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man walked away sad because he had great possessions. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was using the law as a mirror to show him that he was incapable of keeping it. And what it should have done is it should have pointed him to the one who could keep it, it should have pointed him to Christ. But instead for him, he walked away sad because he wouldn't do it and he was incapable of it. And Jesus said, surely he's talking to his disciples about this exact this exact interaction. And he looks at his disciples. and He said, hey, it is easier for the, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. How does a camel get through the eye of a needle? It doesn't. it doesn't you can't you can't earn your way in and he's pointing out the trappings of riches and how much harder that even makes it so then they look at Jesus and they say I said if that's true then who then can be saved and Jesus said with man this is impossible but with God all things are possible see, we need the mirror. We need the mirror to see our sin, to humble us, to realize that we can't earn our way to him. And it puts us absolutely helpless and hopeless at the feet of Jesus. To say, Jesus, you're my only, w- this is, you're the, you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life, and this is the, this is the only way. And so the only way that I can be made righteous in front of God, the only way that I can spend eternity with God, the only way I can have everlasting life is through you, Jesus. I've exhausted all my other efforts and all my other options, and they, they've all come up wanting, and you're the only thing that's left. And so I believe you. I believe you that I'm sinful and I've fallen short of the glory of God. I believe you that you lived without sin. I believe you that you gave your life on the cross in my place. I believe you that you rose again on the third day. And I believe you that that's the only way for me to be saved. And so I receive that. I trust you for salvation and not myself. And then as I walk through my life, I receive the spirit and the spirit says, all right, let's work on this. Let's work on you. Let's make you like Christ. Let's start chiseling away. Let's start molding. Let's start making you like Christ. And I open myself up to that. I ask for that. I seek it. I look for it. And I allow him to start changing me and transforming me. And he uses all kinds of things in order to do that, including the law. And so I look at the law, and we talk, I, I, we talk about this a good bit, I think. But I look at the law, and I see something like the Sabbath, all right, where they were commanded to rest for a day and not do any work so that they would worship and trust God and rest, and their bodies needed it and their mind needed it and their spirit needed it and the, everything. They needed it. And so he told them to rest for a day. And so I look at that, and I say, I know I don't have to do that in order to be saved because I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So I know I don't have to do that. But God, you're showing me something really important about me and my relationship with you in the Sabbath. So what do you want me to do? And it may be to keep the Sabbath exactly like it is in Scripture. That may be what he wants you to do. Not because you have to, because you're choosing to, to be conformed into the image of Christ. Or it may be looking at the Sabbath and applying that in a different way and saying, I know that I need to rest and worship. So these are the things that God is leading me to do. do, 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 do and making sure that I'm intentional in doing those things. He uses the law to show me, oh, I haven't been resting, I haven't been worshiping, I haven't been trusting. Now, how do you want me to do that? And we're in an age where we don't have to be under the guard of the law or kept by the law or constricted by the law, but we get to walk in the freedom of the spirit using God's word and using scripture in order to define and show us how he wants us to live and be faithful to him. And that is so much better. It is so much better. But it takes responsibility and puts it back on us to embrace this process. Freedom in Christ requires us to choose to pursue holiness rather than having it pressed down on top of us with a law or a rule system. It needs to come from the inside out as we choose to pursue and chase what God wants in our life. And that puts the responsibility on you and on me. And listen, you can either do that or you don't. And the results of that are on you and on me for that. We are personally responsible for our maturity and growth and faith and in Christ. But we have seen our inability We have believed God for salvation and we're allowing the spirit to cleanse us day by day. And so first step for you today, if you've never done this, if you've spent your entire life trying to be good enough to get to heaven or trying to be good enough or be a good person so that God will accept you. You need to know if you've never heard this before that you are absolutely incapable of doing that. And I am, too. Couldn't do it. There's no way we could meet His standard. And so the only way to be saved is to stand empty and helpless at the foot of the cross and look at the promise of the cross that Christ will, will take your sin and give you his righteousness. He will save you. He will, he's died in your place. And to look at that and to know that he was raised on the third day and to look at him and to believe him today and say, I believe you. And I'm trusting you, Jesus, to save me. And if you do that in this moment, in this instant, he will save you. And you can stand on that foundation for the rest of your life as you go through a process where he wants to mold you and change you and transform you into the image of Christ. And how much that happens in your life will be up to you. He's not going to slow you down. I promise that. But you can make that decision today. I'd imagine for most of us in the room, we've made the decision to believe Jesus and trust him for salvation. And so for us, it's that ongoing peace of standing firmly on the foundation of our faith, but choosing today to say, I want to be like Christ. I want to be like Christ. So ask God to use the law and to use the scripture as a mirror in your life say, show me where I'm not. Show me where I'm failing. Show me where I'm falling. Show me where i put blinders on, and I'm trying not to see that sin that is absolutely there. And use the law, use the scripture as a mirror for me so that I can see it. And then allow the spirit through you and in you to cleanse you of all of those things. Here's a promise that God has made to you. That if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's First John 1, 9. And so that sin hasn't separated you completely from God, but it has disrupted your fellowship with God and your closeness with him and what he wants in your life. And if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so you can make that commitment today. The goal for all of us, whether that's individuals or us together as a group, is to become more and more like Jesus. And we need to do that in the freedom that we have through the power of the spirit and the leadership and direction of the scripture, including the law. So let's use it and let's use it rightly in our lives as we pursue faithfulness to God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and are so thankful for you. You are good and you are holy and you are just and you are all things good. And you and your goodness decided to make us and to, to, to create us and to create a special relationship with us. And we failed. We dropped the ball. We, we, thought we, could be, we thought we could be you. Thought we could step into your seat and sit in your chair. And we can't, obviously. And so, Father, we failed and you could have easily cast us aside. You could have easily written us off and you didn't do that. In your great love and kindness You developed for yourself a people, a family, and you gave them the law. You gave them a promise first, and then you gave them the law to help guide them and direct them and teach them about you, but also to show them that they fall short. You pointed them towards salvation, which was coming, and then Christ, you came and you lived without sin, and you gave your life on the cross in our place, and you rose again on the third day. And we know that the only way to be saved is to put our faith in you, to receive your grace through faith. And so I pray that someone does that today. And for all of us that have done it a long time ago, renew that in us today, strengthen that in us today, help that foundation to cure a little bit more today. As we build our life on top of it, as we pursue holiness and as we pursue being the people that you created us to be, open up our heart and mind, use, use the scripture and the law as a, as a mirror and as a guide to show us where we're, we're off track, where we're doing things that are outside of your will. And Lord, our commitment standing, sitting before you today is to put effort into that. And say, when the Spirit shows us this, when we look in that mirror and we see something that's not right, that we're going to trust you that, that your will is right, is better than ours. That what you know is higher than ours, that, that your ways are better than ours. And so even if we don't understand it, even if it's hard, even if it's challenging, even if it means change in our life, even if it looks like it means loss in our life, if you show us something that you want us to change so that we can be more in the image of Christ, our commitment right now to you together is to do it. Not in our power, but in the power of the Spirit to do it, to step forward, to take the chance, to take to take the, 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 the risk. And we're going to make the step forward. And Even if we do that, and even if we fail or fall or or, or we don't succeed right away, we know that we can confess that sin to you and there's grace for us and we're going to pick up and we're going to take the step again. And we're going to keep going and we're going to keep going and we're going to keep going. As you show us what it looks like for us to reflect the image of Jesus and we chase it with everything that we have. That's our commitment to you right now. God, together as a church, we commit to you to be a place where we're challenging each other, whether it's here in services or it's in groups or it's in whatever relationship we develop here. Our commitment to you, God, is that we are going to push each other down this path. We're going to carry each other down this path when necessary. So that together we are transformed. So that not only we individually are transformed into the image of Christ, but that through our church, our body, our family, our fellowship, that we would reflect the image of Christ to every single person we come in contact with. That we would be a blessing, that we would be a blessing in your name, a church that reflects your image to the world. And that more people would come into the family of Christ and would walk this path with us that together we look forward to and walk toward the day, Christ, we know that you will return and you will rule and you will reign. Prepare us for that day. We love you with all of our heart and everything that's happened today, we offer it to you in worship. It's in your name we pray, amen.